0: It was the day of the sculling match between Hasty and Mullins, and a stream of men were making their way down to the banks of the Isis. A May sun was shining brightly, and the yellow path was barred with the black shadows of the tall elm trees. On either side, the gray colleges lay back from the road, the hoary old mothers of minds looking out from their high, mullioned windows at the tide of young life which swept so merrily past them. Black clad tutors, prim officials, pale reading men, brown-faced, straw-headed young athletes in white sweaters or many-colored blazers, all were hurrying towards the blue winding river which curves through the Oxford meadows. Abercrombie Smith, with the intuition of an old oarsman, chose his position at the point where he knew that the struggle, if there were a struggle, would come. Far off he heard the hum which announced the start, the gathering roar of the approach, the thunder of running feet, and the shouts of the men in their boats beneath him. A spray of half-clad, deep-breathing runners shot past him, and craning over their shoulders, he saw Hasty pulling a steady thirty-six, while his opponent, with a jerky forty, was a good boat's length behind him. Smith gave a cheer for his friend, and pulling out his watch, was starting off again for his chambers when he felt a touch upon his shoulders, and found that young Monkhouse Lee was beside him. "'I saw you there,' he said, in a timid, deprecating way. "'I wanted to speak to you. "'If you could spare me a half hour. "'This cottage is mine. "'I share it with Harrington of Kings. "'Come in and have a cup of tea.' "'I must be back presently,' said Smith. "'I'm hard on the grind at present, "'but I'll come in for a few minutes with pleasure. "'I wouldn't have come out here, "'only hasty is a friend of mine.' "'And so is he of mine. "'Hasn't he a beautiful style? "'Mullins wasn't in it. "'But come into the cottage.' It's a little den of a place, but it is pleasant to work in during the summer months. It was a small, square, white building with green doors and shutters, and a rustic trellis-work porch, standing back some fifty yards from the river's bank. Inside, the main room was roughly fitted up as a study, deal-table, unpainted shelves with books, and a few cheap oleographs upon the wall. A kettle sang upon the spirit stove and there were tea things upon a tray on the table. "'Try that chair, and have a cigarette,' said Lee. "'Let me pour you out a cup of tea. It's so good of you to come in, for I know that your time is a good deal taken up. I wanted to say to you that, if I were you, I should change my room at once.' Smith sat staring with a lighted match in one hand and his unit cigarette in the other. "'Yes,' It must seem very extraordinary, and the worst of it is that I cannot give my reasons, for I am under a solemn promise—a very solemn promise. But I may go so far as to say that I don't think Bellingham is a very safe man to live near. I intend to camp out here as much as I can for a time. Not safe? What do you mean? Ah, that's what I mustn't say. But do take my advice, and move your rooms. We had a grand row today. You must have heard us, for you came down the stairs. Yeah, I saw that you'd fallen out. He's a horrible chap, Smith. That's the only word for him. I've had doubts about him ever since that night when he fainted. You remember, when you came down. I taxed him today, and he told me things that made my hair rise, and wanted me to stand in with him. I'm not straight-laced, but I am a clergyman's son, you know, and I think there are some things which are quite beyond the pale. I only thank God that I found him out before it was too late, for he was going to be married into my family. That's all very finely, said Abercrombie Smith, curtly, but either you are saying a great deal too much, or a great deal too little. I gave you a warning. If there's a real reason for warning, no promise can bind you. If I see a rascal about to blow a place up with dynamite, no pledge will stand in my way of preventing him. "'Ah, but I cannot prevent him, and I can do nothing but warn you.' "'Without saying what you're warning me against.' "'Against Bellingham.' "'But that's childish. Why should I fear him, or any man?' "'I can't tell you. I can only entreat you to change your room. You're in danger where you are. I don't even say that Bellingham would wish to injure you. But it might happen.' "'for he is a dangerous neighbor just now.' "'Perhaps I know more than you think,' said Smith, "'looking keenly at the young man's boyish, earnest face. "'Suppose I tell you that someone else shares Bellingham's rooms?' Monkhouse Lee sprang from his chair in uncontrollable excitement. "'You know, then?' he gasped. "'A woman.' "'Lee dropped back again with a groan. "'My lips are sealed,' he said. "'I must not speak.' "'Well, anyhow,' said Smith, rising, "'it is not likely that I should allow myself to be frightened out of rooms which suit me very nicely. "'It would be a little too feeble for me to move out all my goods and shadow "'because you say that Bellingham might in some unexplained way do me an injury. "'I think that I'll just take my chances and stay where I am. "'And as I see it, it's nearly five o'clock.' I must ask you to excuse me. He bade the young student adieu in a few curt words, and made his way homeward through the sweet spring evening, feeling half-ruffled, half-amused, as any other strong, unimaginative man might who has been menaced by a vague and shadowy danger. There was one little indulgence which Abercrombie Smith always allowed himself, however closely his work might press upon him. Twice a week, on the Tuesday and the Friday, it was his invariable custom to walk over to Farlingford, the residence of Dr. Plump Tree Peterson, situated about a mile and a half outside of Oxford. Peterson had been a close friend of Smith's elder brother, Francis, and he was a bachelor, fairly well to do, with a good cellar and a better library. His house was a pleasant goal for a man who was in need of a brisk walk. Twice a week, then, the medical student would swing out there along the dark country roads and spend a pleasant hour in Peterson's comfortable study, discussing over a glass of old port the gossip of the varsity, or the latest developments of medicine, or of surgery. On the day which followed his interview with Monkhouse Lee, Smith shut up his books at a quarter past eight, the hour when he usually started for his friend's house. As he was leaving his room, however, his eyes chanced to fall upon one of the books which Bellingham had lent him, and his conscience pricked him for not having returned it. "'however repellent the man might be, "'he should not be treated with discourtesy. "'Taking the book, he walked downstairs "'and knocked at his neighbor's door. "'There was no answer, "'but on turning the handle he found that it was unlocked. "'Pleased at the thought of avoiding an interview, "'he stepped inside and placed the book "'with his card upon the table. "'The lamp was turned half down, "'but Smith could see the details of the room plainly enough. "'It was all much as he'd seen it before, the frieze, the animal-headed gods, the hanging crocodile, and the table littered over with papers and dried leaves. The mummy-case stood upright against the wall, but the mummy itself was missing. There was no sign of any second occupant of the room, and he felt as he withdrew that he had probably done Bellingham an injustice. Had he a guilty secret to preserve, he would hardly leave his door open so that all the world might enter. The spiral stair was as black as pitch, and Smith was slowly making his way down its irregular steps when he was suddenly conscious that something had passed him in the darkness. There was a faint sound, a whiff of air, a light brushing past his elbow, but so slight that he could scarcely be certain of it. He stopped and listened, but the wind was rustling among the ivy outside, and he could hear nothing else. "'Is that you, Stiles?' he shouted. There was no answer, and all was still behind him. It must have been a sudden gust of air, for there were crannies and cracks in the old turret. And yet, he could almost have sworn that he heard a footfall by his very side. He had emerged into the quadrangle, still turning the matter over in his head, when a man came running swiftly across the smooth-cropped lawn. "'Is that you, Smith?' "'Hello, hasty!' "'For God's sake, come at once!' "'Young Lee is drowned. "'Here's Harrington of Kings with the news. "'The doctor is out. "'You'll do, but come along at once. "'There may be life in him. "'Have you any brandy?' "'No. "'I'll bring some. "'There's a flask on my table.' "'Smith bounded up the stairs, "'taking three at a time, "'seized the flask, "'and was rushing down with it, "'when, as he passed Bellingham's room, "'his eyes fell upon something "'which left him gasping "'and staring upon the landing.' The door, which he had closed behind him, was now open, and right in front of him, with the lamplight shining upon it, was the mummy case. Three minutes ago it had been empty. He could swear to that. Now it framed the lank body of its horrible occupant, who stood, grim and stark, with his black shriveled face towards the door. The form was lifeless and inert, but it seemed to Smith as he gazed that there still lingered a lurid spark of vitality some faint sign of consciousness in the little eyes which lurked in the depths of the hollow sockets. So astounded and shaken was he that he had forgotten his errand, and was still staring at the lean, sunken figure when the voice of his friend below recalled him to himself. "'Come on, Smith!' he shouted. "'It's life and death, you know. Hurry up!' "'Now then,' he added, as the medical student reappeared. "'Let us do a sprint. It's well under a mile and we should do it in five minutes. A human life is better worth running for than a pot. Neck and neck they dashed through the darkness and did not pull up until, panting and spent, they had reached the little cottage by the river. Young Lee, limp and dripping like a broken water plant, was stretched upon the sofa, the green scum of the river upon his black hair, and a fringe of white foam upon his leaden-hued lips. Beside him knelt his fellow student Harrington, "'Endeavoring to chafe some warmth back into his rigid limbs. "'I think there's life in him,' said Smith, "'with his hand to the lad's side. "'Put your watch-glass to his lips. "'Yes, there's a dimming on it. "'Take one arm, Hasty. "'Now work on it as I do, and we'll soon pull him round.' For ten minutes they worked in silence, inflating and depressing the chest of the unconscious man. At the end of that time a shiver ran through his body, His lips trembled, and he opened his eyes. The three students burst out into an irrepressible cheer. "'Wake up, old chap! You've frightened us quite enough. Have some brandy. Take a sip from the flask.' "'He's all right now,' said his companion, Harrington. "'Heavens, what a fright I got! I was reading here, and he'd gone for a stroll as for on the river, when I heard a scream and a splash. Out I ran, and by the time that I could find him and fish him out, all the life seemed to have gone out of him. Then Simpson couldn't get a doctor, for he has a game leg, and I had to run, and I don't know what I've done without you fellows. That's right, old chap, Sit up. Monkhouse Lee had raised himself on his hands and looked wildly about him. What's up? he asked. I've been in the water. Ah, oh, yes, I remember. A look of fear came into his eyes, and he sank his face into his hands. How did you fall in? I didn't fall in. Well, how then? I was thrown in. I was standing by the bank, and something from behind picked me up like a feather and hurled me in. I heard nothing, and I saw nothing, but I know what it was for all that. And so do I, whispered Smith. Lee looked up with a quick glance of surprise. "'You've learned, then,' he said. "'You remember the advice I gave you?' "'Yes, and I begin to think that I shall take it.' "'I don't know what the deuce you fellows are talking about,' said Hasty. "'but I think, if I were you, Harrington, I should get Lee to bed at once. "'It will be time enough to discuss the why and the wherefore when he's a little stronger. "'I think, Smith, you and I can leave him alone now. "'I'm walking back to college. "'If you're coming in that direction—' We can have a chat. But it was a little chat that they had upon their homeward path. Smith's mind was too full of the incidents of the evening, the absence of the mummy from his neighbor's rooms. But it was little chat that they had upon their homeward path. Smith's mind was too full of the incidents of the evening, the absence of the mummy from his neighbor's room, the step that passed him on the stair, the reappearance, the extraordinary, inexplicable reappearance of the grisly thing, and then this attack upon Lee. Corresponding so closely to the previous outrage upon another man against whom Bellingham bore a grudge. All this settled in his thoughts, together with the many little incidents which had previously turned him against his neighbor, and the singular circumstances under which he was first called into him. What had been a dim suspicion, a vague, fantastic conjecture, had suddenly taken form, and stood out in his mind as a grim fact, a thing not to be denied. And yet, how monstrous it was, how unheard of, how entirely beyond all bounds of human experience. An impartial judge, or even the friend who walked by his side, would simply tell him that his eyes had deceived him, that the mummy had been there all the time, that young Lee had tumbled into the river as any other man tumbles into a river, and that a blue pill was the best thing for a disordered liver. He felt that he would have said as much, if the positions had been reversed, And yet, he could swear that Bellingham was a murderer at heart and that he wielded a weapon such as no man had ever used in all the grim history of crime. Hasty had branched off to his rooms with a few crisp and emphatic comments upon his friend's unsociability, and Abercrombie Smith crossed the quadrangle to his corner turret with a strong feeling of repulsion for his chambers and their associations. He would take Lee's advice and move his quarters as soon as possible, for how could a man study when his ear was ever straining for every murmur or footstep in the room below? He observed as he crossed over the lawn that the light was still shining in Bellingham's window, and as he passed up the staircase the door opened and the man himself looked out at him. With his fat, evil face he was like some bloated spider fresh from the weaving of his poisonous web. "'Good evening,' said he, "'Won't you come in?' "'No,' cried Smith, fiercely. "'You are as busy as ever. I wanted to ask you about Lee. I was sorry to hear that there was a rumor that something was amiss with him.' His features were grave, but there was the gleam of a hidden laugh in his eyes as he spoke. Smith saw it, and he could have knocked him down for it. "'You'll be sorrier still to hear that Monkhouse Lee is doing very well, and is out of all danger,' he answered. "'Your hellish tricks have not come off this time. Oh, you needn't try to brazen it out. "'I know all about it.' "'Bellingham took a step back from the angry student "'and half closed the door as if to protect himself. "'You are mad,' he said. "'What do you mean? "'Do you assert that I had anything to do with Lee's accident?' "'Yes,' thundered Smith. "'You and that bag of bones behind you. "'You worked it between you. "'I tell you what it is, Master B.' They've given up burning folk like you. But we still keep a hangman. And by George, if any man in this college meets his death while you're here, I'll have you up. And if you don't swing for it, it won't be my fault. You'll find that your filthy Egyptian tricks won't answer in England. You're a raving lunatic, said Bellingham. All right. You just remember what I say, for you'll find that I'll be better than my word. The door slammed and Smith went fuming up to his chamber, where he locked the door upon the inside and spent half the night in smoking his old briar and brooding over the strange events of the evening. Next morning Abercrombie Smith heard nothing of his neighbor, but Harrington called upon him in the afternoon to say that Lee was almost himself again. All day Smith stuck fast to his work, but in the evening he determined to pay the visit to his friend Dr. Peterson, upon which he had started upon the night before. A good walk and a friendly chat would be welcome to his jangled nerves. We'll return to our story right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our story. Bellingham's door was shut as he passed, but glancing back when he was some distance from the turret, he saw his neighbor's head at the window outlined against the lamplight, his face pressed apparently against the glass as he gazed out into the darkness. It was a blessing to be away from all contact with him, Even if only for a few hours, and Smith stepped out briskly and breathed the soft spring air into his lungs. The half moon lay in the west between two Gothic pinnacles and threw upon the silvered street a dark tracery from the stonework above. There was a brisk breeze, and light, fleecy clouds drifted swiftly across the sky. Olds was on the very border of the town, and in five minutes Smith found himself beyond the houses and between the hedges of a May-scented Oxfordshire Lane. It was a lonely and little-frequented road which led to his friend's house. Early as it was, Smith did not meet a single soul upon his way. He walked briskly along until he came to the avenue gate, which opened into the long gravel drive leading up to Farlingford. In front of him he could see the cozy red light of the windows glimmering through the foliage. He stood with his hand upon the iron latch of the swinging gate, and he glanced back at the road along which he had come. Something was coming swiftly down it. It moved in the shadow of the hedge, silently and furtively, a dark, crouching figure, dimly visible against the black background. Even as he gazed back at it, it had lessened its distance by 20 paces and was fast closing upon him. Out of the darkness he had a glimpse of a scraggy neck and of two eyes that will ever haunt him in his dreams. He turned, and with a cry of terror, he ran for his life up the avenue. There were the red lights, the signals of safety, almost within a stone's throw of him. He was a famous runner, but never had he run as he ran that night. The heavy gate had swung into place behind him, but he heard it dash open again before his pursuer. As he rushed madly and wildly through the night, he could hear a swift, dry patter behind him, and he could see as he threw back a glance, that this horror was bounding like a tiger at his heels, with blazing eyes and one stringy arm out thrown. Thank God the door was ajar. He could see a thin bar of light which shot from the lamp in the hall. Nearer yet sounded the clatter from behind. He heard a horse gurgling at his very shoulder. With a shriek he flung himself against the door, slammed and bolted it behind him, and sank half fainting onto the hall chair. "'My goodness, Smith, what's the matter?' asked Peterson, appearing at the door of his study. "'Give me some brandy.' Peterson disappeared, and came rushing out again with a glass and a decanter. "'You look like you need it,' he said, as his visitor drank off what he poured out for him. "'Why, man, you're as white as a cheese.' Smith laid down his glass, rose up, and took a deep breath. "'I'm my own man again now,' said he. "'I was never so unmanned before. "'But with your leave, Peterson, "'I will sleep here tonight, "'for I don't think I could face that road again "'except by daylight. "'It's weak, I know, "'but I can't help it.' "'Peterson looked at his visitor "'with a very questioning eye. "'Of course, you shall sleep here if you wish. "'I'll tell Mrs. Burney to make up the spare bed. "'Where are you off to now?' "'Come up with me to the window "'that overlooks the door.' I want you to see what I've seen. They went up to the window of the upper hall whence they could look down upon the approach to the house. The drive and the fields on either side lay quiet and still, bathed in the peaceful moonlight. Well, really, Smith, remarked Peterson, it is well that I know you to be an abstemious man. What in the world can have frightened you? I'll tell you presently, but where could it have gone? Ah, now! "'Look! Look! See the curve of the road just beyond your gate? "'Yes, I see. You needn't pinch my arm off. "'I saw someone pass. "'I should say a man, rather thin, apparently, and tall. "'Very tall. But what of him? And what of yourself? "'You're still shaking like an aspen leaf. "'I've been within hand-grip of the devil. That's all. "'But come down to your study.' "'and I shall tell you the whole story.' "'He did so. "'Under the cheery lamplight, "'with a glass of wine on the table beside him, "'and the portly form and florid face "'of his friend in front, "'he narrated, in their order, "'all the events, great and small, "'which had formed so singular a chain, "'from the night on which he had found "'bellingham fainting in front of the mummy-case "'until his horrid experience of an hour ago. "'There, now,' he said, "'as he concluded,' "'That's the whole black business. "'It is monstrous and incredible. "'But it is true.' "'Dr. Plumptree Peterson sat for some time in silence "'with a very puzzled expression upon his face. "'I never heard of such a thing in my life. "'Never,' he said at last. "'You have told me the facts. "'Now tell me your inferences. "'You can draw your own. "'But I should like to hear yours.' You have thought over the matter, and I have not. Well, it must be a little vague in detail, but the main point seemed to me to be clear enough. This fellow, Billingham, in his eastern studies, has got hold of some infernal secret by which a mummy, or possibly only this particular mummy, can be temporarily brought to life. He was trying this disgusting business on the night when he fainted. No doubt the sight of the creature moving had shaken his nerve. "'even though he had expected it. "'You remember that almost the first words he said "'were to call out upon himself as a fool. "'Well, he got more hardened afterwards "'and carried the matter through without fainting. "'The vitality which he could put into it "'was evidently only a passing thing, "'for I have seen it continually in its case "'as dead as this table. "'He brings the thing to pass. "'Having done it, he naturally bethought him "'that he might use the creature as an agent.' It has intelligence, and it has strength. For some purpose he took Lee into his confidence, but Lee, like a decent Christian, would have nothing to do with such a business. Then they had a row, and Lee vowed that he would tell his sister of Bellingham's true character. Bellingham's game was to prevent him, and he nearly managed it, by setting this creature off on his track. He had already tried its powers upon another man, Norton, towards whom he had a grudge. It is the merest chance that he has not two murders upon his soul. Then, when I taxed him with the matter, he had the strongest reasons for wishing to get me out of the way before I could convey my knowledge to anyone else. He got his chance when I went out, for he knew my habits and where I was bound for. I have had a narrow shave, Peterson, and it is mere luck you didn't find me on your doorstep in the morning. I am not a nervous man as a rule, and I never thought to have the fear of death put upon me "'as it was the night, "'My dear boy, "'you take the matter too seriously,' "'said his companion. "'Your nerves are out of order with your work, "'and you make too much of it. "'How could such a thing as this stride "'about the streets of Oxford, "'even at night, without being seen?' "'Oh, it has been seen. "'There's quite a scare in the town "'about an escaped ape "'as they imagine the creature to be. "'It's the talk of the place.' "'Well, it's a striking chain of events.' And yet, my dear fellow, you must allow that each incident in itself is capable of a more natural explanation. What? Even my adventure of tonight? Certainly. You come out with your nerves all unstrung, and your head full of this theory of yours. Some gaunt, half-famished tramp steals after you, and seeing you run is emboldened to pursue you. Your fears and imagination do the rest. That won't do, Peterson. It won't do. And again, in the instance of your finding the mummy case empty, and then a few minutes later with an occupant, you know that was lamplight, that the lamp was half turned down, and that you had no special reason to look hard at the case. It's quite possible that you may have overlooked the creature in the first instance. No, that's out of the question. And then Lee may have fallen into the river, and Norton been garrotted. "'It is certainly a formidable indictment "'that you have against Bellingham. "'But if you were to place it before a police magistrate, "'he would simply laugh in your face. "'I know he would. "'That's why I mean to take the matter into my own hands. "'Eh? "'Yes. "'I feel that a public duty rests upon me. "'And besides, I must do it for my own safety, "'unless I choose to allow myself to be hunted "'by this beast out of the college, "'and that would be a little too feeble.' I've quite made up my mind what I shall do. And first of all, may I use your paper and pens for an hour? Most certainly. You'll find all that you want upon that side table. Abercrombie Smith sat down before a sheet of fool's cap, and for an hour, and then for a second hour, his pen travelled swiftly over it. Page after page was finished and tossed aside while his friend leaned back in his armchair, looking across at him with patient curiosity. At last, with an exclamation of satisfaction, Smith sprang to his feet, gathered his papers up into order, and laid the last one upon Peterson's desk. "'Kindly sign this as a witness,' he said. "'A witness of what?' "'Of my signature, and of the date. The date is the most important. Why, Peterson, my life might hang upon it.' "'My dear Smith, you're talking wildly.' let me beg you to go to bed. On the contrary, I never spoke so deliberately in my life, and I will promise to go to bed the moment you've signed it. But what is it? It's a statement of all that I've been telling you tonight. I wish you to witness it. Certainly, said Peterson, signing his name under that of his companion. There you are. But what is the idea? You will kindly retain it, and produce it, in case I'm arrested. "'Arrested for what?' "'For murder. "'It's quite on the cards. "'I wish to be ready for every event. "'There's only one course open to me, "'and I am determined to take it.' "'For heaven's sake, don't do anything rash. "'Believe me, it'd be far more rash "'to adopt any other course. "'I hope that we won't need to bother you, "'but it will ease my mind to know "'that you have this statement of my motives. "'And now I'm ready to take your advice "'and go to roost.' for I want to be at my best in the morning. Abercrombie Smith was not an entirely pleasant man to have as an enemy. Slow and easy-tempered, he was formidable when driven to action. He brought to every purpose in life the same deliberate resoluteness which had distinguished him as a scientific student. He had laid his studies aside for a day, but he intended that the day should not be wasted. Not a word did he say to his host as to his plans, but by nine o'clock, he was well on his way to Oxford. In the high street he stopped off at Clifford's, the gunmakers, and bought a heavy revolver with a box of central fire cartridges. Six of them he slipped into the chambers, and, half cocking the weapon, placed it in the pocket of his coat. He then made his way to Hasty's rooms, where the big oarsman was lounging over his breakfast, with the sporting times propped up against the coffee pot. "'Hello, what's up?' he asked. Have some coffee? No, thank you. I want you to come with me, hasty, and do what I ask you. Certainly, my boy. And bring a heavy stick with you. Hello? Here's a hunting crop that would fell an ox. One other thing. You have a box of amputating knives. Give me the longest of them. There you are. You seem to be fairly on the war trail. Anything else? No, that'll do. Smith placed the knife inside his coat and led the way to the quadrangle. "'We are neither of us chickens. "'Hasty,' said he. "'I think I can do this job alone, but I take you as a precaution. I am going to have a little talk with Bellingham. If I have only him to deal with, I won't, of course, need you. If I shout, however, up you come, and lamb out with your whip as hard as you can lick. Do you understand?' "'All right,' I'll come if I hear you, Bellow. Stay here, then. It may be a little time, but don't budge until I come down. I'm a fixture. Smith ascended the stairs, opened Bellingham's door, and stepped in. Bellingham was seated behind his table, writing. Beside him, among his litter of strange possessions, towered the mummy case, with its sale number, lot 249, still stuck upon its front, and its hideous occupant stiff and stark within it. Smith looked very deliberately round him, closed the door, locked it, took the key from the inside, and then, stepping across to the fireplace, struck a match and set the fire alight. Bellingham sat staring with amazement and rage upon his bloated face. Well, really now, you make yourself at home, he gasped. Smith sat himself deliberately down, placing his watch upon the table, drew out his pistol, cocked it, And laid it in his lap. Then he took the long amputating knife from his bosom and threw it down in front of Bellingham. Now then, said he, just get to work and cut up that mummy. Oh, is that it? said Bellingham with a sneer. Yeah, that's it. They tell me that the law can't touch you, but I have a law that will set matters straight. If in five minutes you've not set to work, I swear by the God who made me that I'll pull a bullet through your brain. You would murder me? Bellingham had half risen, and his face was the color of putty. Yes. And for what? To stop your mischief. One minute is gone. But what have I done? I know and you know. This is mere bullying. Two minutes are up. But you must give reasons. You're a madman, a dangerous madman. Why should I destroy my own property? It's a valuable mummy. You must cut it up, and you must burn it. I will do no such thing. Four minutes gone. Smith took up the pistol, and he looked towards Bellingham with an inexorable face. As the second hand stole round, he raised his hand, and the finger twitched upon the trigger. There, there, I'll do it! screamed Bellingham. In frantic haste, he caught up the knife "'and hacked at the figure of the mummy, "'ever glancing round to see the eye and the weapon "'of his terrible visitor bent upon him. "'The creature crackled and snapped "'under every stab of the keen blade. "'A thick yellow dust rose up from it. "'Spices and dried essences rained down upon the floor. "'Suddenly, with a rending crack, "'its backbone snapped asunder, "'and it fell, a brown heap of sprawling limbs, "'upon the floor. "'Now, throw it into the fire.' "'said Smith. "'The flames leaped and roared "'as the dried and tinder-like debris "'was piled upon it. "'The little room was like the stoke-hole of a steamer "'and the sweat ran down the faces of the two men, "'but still the one stooped and worked "'while the other sat watching him with a set face. "'A thick, fat smoke oozed out from the fire, "'and a heavy smell of burned rosin "'and singed hair filled the air. "'In a quarter of an hour "'a few charred and brittle sticks "'were all that was left of Lot number 249. Perhaps that will satisfy you, snarled Bellingham, with hate and fear in his little gray eyes as he glanced back at his tormentor. No, it doesn't. I have to make a clean sweep of all your materials. No more devil's tricks. In with all these papers. They most likely have something to do with it. And what now? asked Bellingham when the leaves had also been added to the blaze. Now the roll of papers which you had on the table that night. It's in that drawer. No, no, shouted Bellingham. Don't burn that. Why, man, you don't know what you do. It's unique. It contains wisdom which is nowhere else to be found. Out with it. But look here, Smith. You can't really mean it. I'll share the knowledge with you. I'll teach you all that's in it or stay. Let me only copy it before you burn it. Smith stepped forward and turned the key in the drawer. Taking out the yellow curled roll of paper, he threw it into the fire and pressed it down with his heel. Bellingham screamed and grabbed at it, but Smith pushed him back and stood over it until it was reduced to a formless gray ash. "'Now, Master B,' said he, "'I think I've pretty well drawn your teeth. You'll hear from me again,' "'if you return to your old tricks. "'And now good morning, "'for I must go back to my studies.' "'And such is the narrative of Abercrombie Smith "'as to the singular events which occurred "'at Old College Oxford in the spring of 84. "'Bellingham left the university immediately afterwards "'and was last heard of in the Sudan. "'There is no one who can contradict his statement. "'But the wisdom of men is small, "'and the ways of nature are strange.' And who shall put a bound to the dark things which may be found by those who seek for them? Thanks for joining us for Lot Number 249 by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. If you enjoy 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, please do send us a review, Apple listeners. We would appreciate that very much. Meanwhile, thanks everyone for joining us, and please share our show with a friend. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.